Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. As we approach Blue Monday, it's important to remember that this concept, coined in 2004 as part of a marketing campaign, doesn't actually dictate our mental health. While shorter days and less sunlight can affect our mood, Blue Monday is largely a construct designed to encourage consumerism. So let's not play into the narrative set by marketers. Instead, let's focus on real issues that impact our lives. Today's show is all about taking control and addressing meaningful topics. Here's what's coming up. We start with a critical and often overlooked issue, stalking. I'm excited to welcome back Julie Lalonde, a prominent women's rights advocate, to discuss the launch of the Canadian Anti-Stalking Association. Julie's new organization is a groundbreaking initiative aimed at changing laws, providing education, and supporting stalking survivors. We'll delve into how this organization plans to transform the landscape for survivors. Halfway through dry January, many might be seeking motivation to continue their alcohol-free journey. Sarah Kate, founder of Some Good Clean Fun, joins me to share her insights on living without alcohol and building a community around this lifestyle. We'll explore the benefits and challenges of sobriety and get some expert tips from Sarah. Next, I'm joined by fitness expert Alyssa Ages to tackle a topic surrounded by myths, women and weightlifting. Alyssa will debunk common misconceptions and highlight the benefits of strength training for women. Let's lift the veil on this topic and embrace the empowering aspects of weightlifting for women. In this month's Care to Know segment, we're discussing a topic often whispered about but crucial to women's health, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, also known as GSM. Dr. Christine Palme is here to shed light on this condition and discuss available treatments. It's time to bring this conversation into the open. To round off the show, I'm joined by Misty Pratt, author of All in Her Head, How Gender Bias Harms Women's Mental Health. Misty's book offers a deep dive into the unique challenges women face in mental health care and the systemic changes needed for true flourishing. This is a big topic, and I'm eager to delve into this crucial conversation with Misty. So whether you're looking for insights into personal safety, sobriety, fitness, women's health, or mental health care, today's show has something for everyone. Let's start the new year with empowering discussions and thought-provoking topics on what she said right here on 105.9 The Region. I'll take you all away, boy, just come along, hear me when I say, hey, it's matter on the dance We're kicking today's show off with a crucial and often overlooked issue, stalking. I'm thrilled to welcome back Julie Lalonde, a renowned women's rights advocate and public educator, to discuss the launch of the Canadian Anti-Stalking Association. With her extensive background in advocating for women and girls in Canada, Julie is spearheading this vital initiative to address the lack of dedicated resources for stalking survivors and victims in Canada. Stalking, a crime since 1993, remains shrouded in confusion and misunderstanding. 
Julie's new organization aims to change the law, provide prevention education, and build a network for survivor support. Let's find out more about this groundbreaking effort and how it plans to transform the landscape of support and advocacy for stalking survivors. Welcome back, Julie. Thanks so much for having me. We were just saying before we kicked off this interview that one day you're going to join me and we're going to discuss something really happy and uplifting. <laughs> but, but today it's serious. So it's tell serious, me about unfortunately. it. Unfortunately. Yeah. So as you said, stalking has only been illegal in Canada since 1993. And the law was created specifically in response to intimate partner violence um, and the realization that many, many survivors, people who flee an abusive home, an abusive relationship, often end up being stalking afterward, being stalked afterwards. So uh, it's only been a crime in Canada for 30 years. Um, and not once in Canada have we ever had an organization dedicated solely to addressing stalking. So Canada has one of the worst responses to stalking of any country in the Western world. Um, we are years behind the United States. We are years behind the UK, for example, where they have really robust systems in place. And so survivors of stalking in Canada, as you said, often don't even know that that's what they're experiencing. So there's no real education on what this stuff looks like. There's very little education, if at all, around what to do about it. So people think the only option is I have to wait for it to get bad enough to call the police. Um, and so survivors don't like they literally Google and what comes up is Justice Canada statistics. Like there's no real um, robust network and support. But we know that women working in shelters, women working in sexual assault centers on, you know, victim services, they're seeing these cases, they're seeing these experiences, but they don't have, they can't sort of dedicate all of their time to that particular issue because they're busy trying to end domestic violence and, you know, cyber violence and all of these things. So it was time for Canada to have a real dedicated space and organization to lead this conversation and bring together existing experts across Canada to change um, the country and make it a safer place. So I tried to find some statistics prior to this interview on stalking, and I really couldn't find much. So what, what do you have in terms of data and how common this is? Um, and how many or who experiences? Is there a certain age group? Yeah, so we know that women under 25 have the highest rates of sexual assault and of stalking. Uh, also important to know that in Canada, we I use the word stalking. We colloquially use it, but legally it's actually called criminal harassment. Um, and so in Canada, women under 25 have the highest rates of that and of sexual assault. So we know it's a lot of young women. Um, we also know it's a gendered crime. So nine out of 10 stalkers in Canada are men, and that is a Justice Canada statistic. So I talk about it in a gendered way because it is. Um, and again, that doesn't mean that men are not being stalked because they are, um, or that women are not stalkers because they are. Um, but when we're talking about this, it is very much gendered. So not only are nine out of 10 stalkers men, 76% um, of victims are women. Uh, so again, even when men are being stalked, they're more likely to be stalked by another man. Um, and what's important to know is that 58% of victims of stalking in Canada are stalked specifically by a former partner. And so when we think about stalking in pop culture, for example, it's often a creepy stranger who's lurching behind the bushes, or maybe someone who's just met you once at a bookstore and became obsessed with you. And these are very real things that happen. But the vast majority are people who are fleeing an abusive relationship. And so 
it's important for us to use the right language. Like when we, most of us know that a woman leaving an abusive relationship is most at risk of being harmed, including being killed in the months after she's left her abuser. And that is absolutely true. But why is that? Because she's being stalked by him. (laughs) And so our failure to actually use the proper language is I think what contributes to us not seeing that stalking is absolutely a red flag that your life is in danger. Um, and we need to name that for what it is so that we can see, oh yeah, this is absolutely gendered. This is something that many, many, many women have experienced um, and that it is a continuation of domestic violence. Tell me then how you plan to help uh, victims and you know address some of the laws that we have in place. So we have big dreams um, for this organization and we're in it for the long haul. So in the short term, our goal is to Uh, change the law in Canada. So currently, in order for something to meet the threshold of being a crime, you have to prove three things, that it was unwanted, that it was repeated, and that it made you fear for your safety. And that third piece is what keeps tripping up a lot of uh, justices. Um, And there's a few famous cases in Canada, one in particular out of Montreal, where because the woman was on camera yelling at her stalker to leave her alone that was then brought into her trial and the judge argued well if you're yelling at him and you're mad at him then you clearly aren't afraid of him and so what? he was acquitted i know oh and my another- god that hurts my head that hurts my head I- what isn't that bananas and what's so fascinating about that is that if you pull back and you think okay so when women experience sexual harassment sexual assault boundary violations we're told be assertive just be assertive Candace just tell them off just say no and then you're like okay I did that and therefore proved that it was unwanted because I'm yelling at him and yet now you're saying oh but are were you angry oh women can't be scared and angry at the same time you know and so that creates it's it's it becomes subjective it becomes the judge decides whether or not you show fear and so in the case of Sue Montgomery in Montreal oh you were a woman who was angry couldn't be scared But I also think about my brother. My brother, thankfully, has never been stalked. But my brother's a six foot six white man, right, who if he was being stalked by an ex-girlfriend, by some jilted person that he said no to and didn't, would a judge believe that my brother could be scared of a woman because he's this mountain of a man, right? And so it just creates too much opportunity for interpretation, for subjectivity. And so what I'm proposing and what, you know, in consultation with legal experts is absolutely feasible is that, yes, you have to prove it was unwanted. You have to prove it was repeated. Sure. But the third criteria should be that it impedes your ability to go about your daily life because that is objective, right? You could measure, okay, Julie had to change her phone number. She had to change her shifts at work. She had to contact her childcare provider. So those are things that you can measure objectively. And therefore there's no room for a judge to say, well, you didn't really act like a victim. Instead, it's like, no, I absolutely did because I had to modify my entire life. And so that is very feasible. Uh, I proposed it when I testified um, at the uh, femicide inquiry last year. Um, it was accepted as one of the recommendations. And in fact, last year, uh, no, sorry, early this summer, actually, um, the gov- federal government had a year to respond to the inquest and they accepted many of the recommendations and explicitly named the fact that they were in agreement that we can and should change the law on stalking in Canada, which is unbelievable good news. But again, it became, okay, who's going to lead this? Who's going right. to lead that movement and, and that work back and forth with the government? And there was nobody to pick up that torch. And so 
That's my first tangible hope is that we can get that law changed, which would then make it so much easier for people to get convictions, um, which then keeps folks safer in certain ways. Um, and then sort of long-term goal is for me and for the organization is to really build that robust network. In the UK, for example, they have a national hotline where you can call and you can find out your rights. You can find out, is this even a crime? You know, in Canada, province to province, there's different laws around how to get a peace bond, how to do certain things. And there's no place to bring those that information together. Um, and I would love to also be able to offer free legal advice. So having a program similar to what we have in some places in Canada around sexual assault, where you get four free hours of legal advice from a lawyer to figure out what your options are. Um, that's doable. We've seen it for sexual assault. We've seen it for intimate partner violence. So we need to also create that for stalking. And so changing the law will allow more people to feel empowered to you know, advocate for themselves in the legal system. But my broader hope is that education piece, really putting education in our schools, working with police, working with shelter workers, teachers, people who work with men and boys, um, to really fill that gap of, of information that we're seeing in Canada, which is no real attempt to prevent this stuff from happening in the first place. And so being able to do that prevention work would be, I think, a, make a tremendous difference in the way we even talk about it and then hopefully reduce the rates, which is the ultimate goal, because then I can do something else with my life and come on and talk about making vegan cupcakes or something. <laughs> happy things. Happy things. That's our goal. All right. Let's get you. Let's get you there because I people are listening right now. And I am sure people's jaw hit the ground when they heard that story you just told about the woman in Montreal. Um, so how do we help you? Where can we find out more? What do you need us to do? So thank you if you are listening to this and you are feeling those big feelings because that's that's the appropriate reaction, right? We should be horrified by what's going on in this country. So. Uh, stalking.ca is the website to find out more information about tangible things you can do right away. Uh, January is Stalking Awareness Month in Canada. And so I'll be posting um, lots of content on our socials. So on Instagram, if you follow us there, um, on you know any platforms that we're on that still exist, <laughs> aka if Twitter falls apart. Um, but even just reposting content for the month of January, I'm telling you, if you ever speak about your experience of stalking or you just mention it, you will hear from people in your life who say that happened to me too. So just letting people know that they're not alone. Uh, and that's as simple and as free as reposting social media content that we'll be posting, going to our website, which again is stalking.ca. Um, and then really getting involved with, uh, you know, join us. We have a mailing list. We're going to pull people together to help us. Um, change the law. And that's as simple as, you know, signing petitions, writing to your MP, really simple things that are free that you can do um, to support us in making Canada a safer place, frankly. All right. Well, let me just say it. That happened to me too. So thank you for having me on, Julie, and discussing this, a really important topic. Uh, and I am looking forward to uh, cheering you on to success so we can talk about vegan recipes someday. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. more talk of these sad things more with candace sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 the region welcome back to what she said with candace sampson on 1059 the region
As we approach the halfway mark of dry January, many of you might be looking for a little extra motivation and guidance to keep going. Whether you're exploring a month of sobriety or considering a longer alcohol-free journey, I've got just the person to help you through. Joining me today is Sarah Kate, the founder and editor of Some Good Clean Fun, who turned her personal decision to live without alcohol into a thriving community platform. Let's dive into her journey, the benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle, and her expert tips for navigating this space. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. You are so fun and so full of energy. You are absolutely proof positive that you do not need alcohol to have a good time. So can you share a little bit about your personal journey of choosing to live without alcohol and how it led to the creation of some good, clean fun? Yeah, so I um, I was always like a sort of a joyful drinker. Like I like to go out with friends. I love to socialize. I love being around people. And over time, you know, I just started drinking a little bit more and a little bit more. And then, you know, life, you know, gets heavy and you start turning to a glass of wine more frequently. And I didn't feel good about that. And it started getting to a point where I'm like, this isn't good. This is not good. And I didn't like my relationship with it. It felt like it was all consuming at some points. And I thought, that's it. I'm done. And uh, I started doing a dry month in April of 2020, just when the pandemic started. Excellent timing. (laughs) Yeah. And then as I started going down that path and really like just disconnecting myself from alcohol, I called it rethinking drinking. um, I realized that there wasn't a lot of people building communities are talking about non-alcoholic drink options and, you know, the positive choice to have an alcohol-free lifestyle. So I didn't really relate to the term sober. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't like to label myself and it doesn't, I don't want to say, you know, you can't label yourself if that's your, if that's what you want to, you know, call yourself. I just myself was like, I don't, that doesn't resonate with me. So I'm like, I have an alcohol-free lifestyle and I didn't ever have to go to recovery. And it wasn't something that um, you know, was, was disrupting my life. Like it wasn't, um, you know, I did kind of hit rock bottom and have to bounce back. This was a choice, an active choice I made. So I wanted to find the joyful aspects of this and share it. And that's how this came about was this like exploration of the drinks, which is, you know, the fun side of it. And, you know, really advocating for disconnecting from the narrative of you need to have a drink to, to have fun in life. Well, I really love how we ha- we are changing the narrative in our society around drinking and that, you know, you can give up drinking without it being a, a major addiction issue. It's maybe you just don't want to do it anymore, which is great. So there is a really big growing conversation around this. So how are you contributing to changing the narrative through your platform? So what I what I do is um, I really try and advocate for um, sort of that uh, the uh, the drink option. So I know this seems like a very fluffy part of it, but it's really important for me for people to understand that if you are reaching for a glass of wine, you can you can put a, a substitute into that glass that is very similar to wine, but it doesn't have the after effects of that. I want to really elevate the idea of it doesn't have to be alcohol in your glass. You can enjoy something that tastes great, whether it's a, an exact dupe of your wine or whether it's an adapt, you know, this, this new type of drink called euphorics have started to come out. They're like a adaptogens are using for like functional, they're functional beverages, you know, whatever's in your glass. It's the idea of enjoying a moment of, um, you know, relaxation and de-stressing with something that's not alcohol. And so that's how I'm trying to change the conversation is that, you know, not, people can't, I think human, humans are, it's hard for us to say never again. Right. Never drinking again without going back to it. You know, there's there, there doesn't have to be an extreme, but if you swap out one drink or two drinks here and there for something non-alcoholic, 
it will help you see how good it feels little by little. Baby steps, right? Absolutely. And and for those who are participating, like we're midway through the month right now, and some people might be finding getting through the rest of the month hard. They might be struggling a little bit. That's fair. So yeah. do you have any tips for staying on track, especially in social settings, which I think is probably the hardest hurdle yes. for people? Yes. Okay. So here's my thing. This is what I tell people. It's like kind of three easy things. So number one, if you are going into a social setting at a restaurant and you know um, you can't bring your own stuff with you, then there's a couple things you can do. One, if people ask you, why aren't you drinking? Don't get into it. Just say, I'm not, I'm just not, I'm not into feeling it today. Don't go into like, well, I'm trying a dry January, a dry month. Cause it gets, people get defensive when you, you know, and, that, and then you end up sharing your story and feeling guilty. And then they try and pressure you. So, it, you know, just say, I'm not into it today. The second thing is order a uh, soda with bitters. So bitters are a couple of drops of bitters and some club in some soda is under 0.5% alcohol. So it's, it still makes you feel like you're having an elevated drink. Ask for it in a short glass, like in a tumbler. Um, or like, a, you know, a, you know, I'm talking like a rocks glass. And so you feel like you're drinking a grown up drink. So those are that's one tip. The second tip is if you're going to somebody's house, or socializing at home, have stuff on hand, bring stuff with you, non alcoholic drinks. Now the labeling on them doesn't look like they're non alcoholic. So you could go to a party with a six pack of athletic, uh, athletic brewing company beer, and it doesn't look like alcohol free beer. So bring your own stuff, try to change the subject. If people are asking you why you're not drinking, it's none of their business. And, you know, order, order bitters and soda at, at the bar, ask for a squeeze of lime in that, you know, and, and make yourself a, an elevated drink with things that are available behind the bar that are not alcoholic. And, you know, since we last spoke, the alcohol-free space has evolved even more. It's becoming bigger and more popular. And this is very exciting. What trends yeah. do you foresee for 2024 um, in terms of, you know, inclusive hosting and restaurant offerings, that sort of thing? Yeah. There's what's really interesting is that people who are, you know, they they started out by looking for dupes of your wines, your beers. Now we're getting people we're getting more ex, like innovative and creative and exploratory when it comes to what we're drinking. And there's all these new things, like I mentioned, the euphorics and, you know, functional drinks are coming out with all these amazing things that are the flavor spectrum is so different. So we are used to drinking wine, beer, alcohol, like spirits, right? And there's very specific taste, flavor profiles for all those things. In 2024, I do believe that there's going to be a lot more of these coming onto the market. These things that have like a very unique flavor profile. There's one right now called Drink the Pathfinder. And it's basically like a, a vermouth and an aperitif merged together into one product made of hemp, hemp and root. And it's a totally unique flavor. And it doesn't taste either alcoholic or non-alcoholic. It just tastes like its own thing. And it's really exciting to see those types of that type of innovation being pushed forward. And we're going to be looking for those dupes less and less, I think, that it's going to be a trend to try new things, new flavors, new ways of experiencing flavor. Now that we've gotten over that, like, you know, okay, we don't actually need alcohol. Now, what's next? It's the flavor. It's the experience of drinking something. Well, listen, I knew we were in a new world when I was at Costco the last time and some <laughs> were selling mocktails in the aisle. Yes. I was like, okay, we are definitely in a new era. Now. Yeah. It's exciting yes, to see. Yes, it fun. is. Yeah. <laughs> it's when Costco gets on board, you know that the, the you know things are shifting uh, because they're selling those things at scale. And for me, the most important part is not the price at Costco. It's that more eyeballs get onto this idea of, oh, there's options out there for me. That's what's really important. 
I did dry January a couple of years ago, and I we talked about this. I you know I went beyond, well beyond the thirty days. I went I think yeah. about two hundred and seventy eight or something before I had to drink yeah. again, and I just jumped yeah. in again. And I think a lot of people will find that by the time they get to the end of January, they don't want to continue. So, you know, if they're listening right now and they want to consider extending their alcohol-free journey beyond January, any resources or support networks you would recommend? You know, the Canadian Cancer Society is doing a a dry February campaign. And so they're pulling together. I don't know if it's if it's there or not, but you can check out the the Canadian Cancer Society dry February website. I think that's a really good place to start if you're, you know, if you are feeling like you need some extra (laughs) motivation. There's also, you know, uh, Instagram. Instagram is a really great tool to connect with other people who are going through the same thing and looking for those that community on Instagram. And just, you don't have to, you know, be involved in commenting, but just following people who are trying dry, trying dry January, that kind of thing helps to encourage and inspire. And that, so those are the two things that I can, you know, I think good two good resources. Well, I think uh, there's a third that you did not mention, and uh, that would be your site. So. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay, yeah. Well, so you could, you can you can go to, no, yes, you should go to somegoodcleanfun.com. I did want to throw it out to the, the Cancer Society, though, because I really do, um, you know, it's really important that health organizations are, are, are uh, contributing to that conversation. So, but yeah, somegoodcleanfun.com. I've got lots of recipes for you to try. There's a little bit of lifestyle advice there on, you know, detox, yoga for detoxing and things like that and some success tips and stuff. So check that out and you can sign up for my newsletter too. It comes out every Friday and I try and uh, provide resources for you there as well. Wonderful. And could you just quickly uh, share your Instagram handle again? Yes, it's at some good clean fun. Wonderful. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. In this next interview, we're tackling a topic that's been a subject of much debate and misconception in the fitness world, women and weightlifting. Joining me is Alyssa Ages, a fitness expert who's here to debunk myths and shed light on the benefits of weightlifting for women. We'll discuss everything from the fear of bulking up to the real impacts of strength training on women's bodies. So let's lift the veil on this topic and welcome Alyssa to the show. Alyssa, I am so happy you're here. I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I think there's a really a common misconception or a belief that women who lift weights will bulk up. They'll be swole. So can you explain why this is a myth and what actually happens to women's bodies when they lift weights? Yeah, I think, I mean, as far as why it's a myth um, or how it kind of became something that we talked about, um, you know, I when I was so when I was writing my book Secrets of Giants, um, one of the things that I did when I started to think about body image and women in strength training was I thought, okay, well, whenever we talk about bulking up to women in strength, we usually say one of two things: either you know, uh, don't lift weights because you're going to get bulky, or if someone is really enthusiastic about lifting, they might tell you, oh no, no, don't worry, you won't get bulky from lifting, right? But either way, we're suggesting that bulkiness is something that's bad. And I thought, well, okay, where did that come from? So I looked up the definition of bulky. And the definition is taking up much space, typically inconveniently. And I went, oh, okay, this makes so much sense now, right? Because 
what do people not want women to do? Take up space, whether that's physically, emotionally, at home, in the office, um, wherever that is. And it's inconvenient when a woman with her body, with the way that she acts, with the way that she carries herself, um, takes up space because it's often thought that that woman is taking space from a man, right? So I think that's where we kind of got this idea from. The truth is that while, yes, you will put on muscle mass when you lift, um, you also have to be really, really focused on that. And there's a lot of different changes that you have to make in your life and the way that you eat and the way that you move and you know, everything related to that if you actually want to bulk up using that terminology. Um, I was training for a, a national level strongman competition and I wanted to put on mass because I needed to get stronger for it. And it was so much harder than I thought it would be. Um, you know, I had to really be mindful of what I was eating. I had to purposefully be in a calorie surplus, eat more protein, um, you know, work out a certain way. So it's kind of this mixed bag, right? Where you want to tell people like, yes, yes, do this. Don't be scared. But also don't be scared because, you know, taking up space is awesome. And I think, you know, obviously a lot of us have bought into this sort of patriarchal BS about lifting weights as a woman. Um, and unfortunately, it's to our detriment because muscle is so important, especially as we age. So for women who are listening who feel that they may be beyond the time of their life where they can build muscle, say they're in perimenopause or menopause, do you have any advice or tips for them? Yeah, I think, you know, especially women of my generation and older, um, I think we grew up being told, hey, you know, don't lift. You don't want to be muscular. You don't want to be whatever. It's Lifting weights is something that feels scary, I think, to a lot of women. Um, but the truth is, as we get older, two things happen, right? So as women, as we start to go through menopause um, and our estrogen levels plummet, what starts to happen is we're losing bone density, right? And then also for everybody as they age, we start to lose muscle mass and muscle strength. We're going through something called sarcopenia. And when you combine those two things together, the loss of muscle mass and strength and the loss of bone, you get into the situation where you start to have to worry about fall risk, right? When you don't have that muscle mass, you don't have the balance, you're more likely to fall. And then when you do fall, if your bone density is lower, that's where you start to have issues like fractures. And that's where you start to worry about losing your independence as you get older. And I think that's one of the scariest things. So we know that the most important thing you can do for your health, especially as a woman, as you get older, is strength training. The only way to build that bone density is to put pressure to add load onto your bones. And that is what you do through weight-bearing exercises. It doesn't mean you have to go to a CrossFit class, right? You don't have to do that. You can do bodyweight exercises. You can do resistance bands. You can do light dumbbells. Um, it's just important that you're doing strength training in some capacity. So there never is really a time then when it's too late? Absolutely. To actually start building muscle? Is no. Any time? Really, yeah. I really think that you can start doing that at, you know, at any point. Um, I do think that as you get older... Um, it becomes even more important to work ideally one-on-one -on -one with somebody, um, to not just walk into a gym and pick up a heavyweight and just kind of guess at it from something you saw, I don't know, on Instagram. Um, you know, you really do want to be working with somebody, especially somebody who is used to working with older populations, um, who can watch you and your form and make sure that you're not at risk for injury because you're moving in the wrong way. Obviously, we want to protect ourselves from falls and, you know, our 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 muscle, or sorry, our bone mass breaking down and so on. But are there any other benefits of weightlifting uh, that women should really consider? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I spoke a little bit about it in terms of body image, um, you know, and just sort of the way that we see ourselves and our ability to take up space in the world and how important that is. Um, but what we know is that strength training has all of these impacts that go far beyond just physical, right? So there are studies to show that strength training can improve um, symptoms of depression and anxiety. Uh, I personally saw it help me go through healing from a trauma that I went through, right? Because in order to lift something, you have to trust in your body in a way that maybe if you've gone some, through something traumatic, you don't feel that way anymore, right? Um, I think people often think, okay, well, I'm going to heal from that through yoga. And that works for a lot of people, but maybe not for everybody. Um, for me, having to you know, pick up a heavy weight really made me believe in my body again. I had gone through a miscarriage and that was, that was what really helped me kind of come back to life from that was going from a place where I didn't trust my body anymore um, to believing that it really could do hard things. How can women then balance cardio and strength training in their fitness routines for sort of optimal health benefits? Because I can kind of hear the protests from here of women who'll say, I don't have time for this. How do I fit everything in? So tips, advice? <laughs> um, so I will say like I was a cardio junkie. I have run a bunch of marathons and done triathlons and I love that and I still run right? So I don't just go into the gym and lift every day. I'm absolutely still doing cardio. And cardio is still important, right? We need to improve our cardiovascular health. That's great. And also, here's the thing, you're only going to do the workout that you love, right? So ultimately, if that's what you love doing, that's great. What I would encourage you to do is add some strength training into that. So even if that's just one day a week, two days a week, where you're just getting into either the gym or doing it at home, you can pick up gallon jugs of water and bicep curl them right? You know, you can get resistance bands that take up absolutely no space and are pretty easy to figure out on your own how to move with those. Um, so there are little ways to get that in um, that I don't think take up too much of your life. And what about nutrition? Because obviously this plays a really crucial role. So, you know, and there are so many diets out there right now. So if somebody's vegan, do they really have to push to have, make sure that they have enough protein when they're weightlifting? Uh, you know, keto diet? Like, how does that all sort of come together? Yeah. I mean, I think much like the choice of fitness that you that you pick, you're only going to stick with what works for you, right? So if something like keto, which is very extreme, it might sound great, but if, if that's going to be really difficult for you to maintain in your life, that's not the right diet for you. Um, you know, I think really the focus just it sounds so basic, but the focus should just be on getting, you know, you want to get about a gram of protein for every pound of body weight. That's just general. More if your goal is to put on mass, right? So it's very different. If you're trying to bulk up and you're trying to put on muscle mass, you need to be in a calorie surplus. Um, you need to be having more than that one gram of protein. And you also need to be having a fair amount of carbohydrates. Um, now, that just depends person to person. I'm not a dietitian also, so I should say that. Um, I really just know kind of what worked for me. But I do think that especially this time of year, we're being inundated with so many things about this is the diet, this is the thing, or I'm going to, you know, my New Year's resolution is going to be to go keto or to go paleo or whatever it is. Um, and I just think the most crucial thing is just that you you do what works for your body. And yeah, that's what you'll stick to. We absolutely do overcomplicate 
our, our health and fitness. <laughs> so, and you sound like you, you like to keep it simple, which I can embrace. So how can people connect with you uh, and find your book or follow along online for advice and tips sort of on a daily basis? Yeah. Uh, so my book is called Secrets of Giants, A Journey to Uncover the True Meaning of Strength. It is not for just weightlifters, CrossFitters, whatever. It's really for um, for anybody who just wants to, I think, be inspired by this sort of journey into strength. This was my sort of midlife crisis odyssey into the world of strength. I'm a 42-year-old mom of two, right? I'm not, you know, a 20-something-year-old mega athlete. Um, that's really important to note. Uh, you can buy that anywhere books are sold. It came out through um, Avery, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. Um, and then online, you can find me um, pretty much everywhere at Alyssa Aegis, um, which includes my website as well. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alyssa. Thank you so much for having me. are diving into women's health issues in this next Care to Know segment, and there's one topic that often gets whispered about but deserves to be discussed openly. Genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or GSM for short. And no, we're not talking about a new smartphone model. GSM can significantly impact a woman's quality of life, affecting her sexual health and overall well-being. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Christine Palme, a family doctor from Midtown Toronto, who is here on behalf of care to know to help us understand this common condition and the available treatments. Welcome back, Christine. Thanks for having me, Candice. Well, this is certainly a whispered about condition because I had never heard of it. So how does it affect postmenopausal women? Well, you aren't alone, Candice. I mean, really, there has been in the past 20 years, a real dark period for women's health in terms of menopause, postmenopausal, and perimenopausal treatments. You know, women aren't talking about it. Physicians aren't bringing it up, uh, leaving many women with symptoms that can be solved or at least treated and minimized, uh, you know, suffering in silence. And don't whisper, shout out. We're here to open up the dialogue. Um, and I, I really want to be emphatic that these are common symptoms, right? Most women postmenopausally and certainly women perimenopausally have uh, called the genital urinary syndrome. I call it symptoms. And it's not just a dry uh, vagina that's uh, typically appreciated. It's feeling that you're constantly having urinary tract infection, irritation, you know, a little bit of incontinence. It's really the entire system that gets affected and can drastically affect a woman's quality of life. Sex becomes painful, unpleasant. It shouldn't be you know, women feel that they can't leave without wearing a pad or a diaper because they're wear, worried about being incontinent. And that irritation is, quite frankly, irritating. But we have options, many of which are changing. This is the renaissance of women's health uh, that's running along the renaissance of immunizations as well. Um, so you need to open up the dialogue, talk about your symptoms, and make sure you ask what's available. And I know that you're a big proponent of knowledge is power, and so we're here to inform people. So when women go to see their primary care physician and they want to discuss uh, GSM, how do they open up that conversation with their doctor? I think simply saying, I would like to talk about my 
I often have people phrase it as my change in hormones, how I'm approaching menopause, what I can do. I have these symptoms. Insist on a pelvic exam. If you don't get one from your primary care provider, go elsewhere and get one. It's really important for a, a primary care provider to examine um, the patient and see, you know, what's actually happening to rule out other things. And, you know, the treatments we have are vast. There's lifestyle changes, so using lubricants during sex, proper vaginal hygiene. But in terms of medications, we've come a long way with hormone replacement therapy. Uh, a lot of uh, GSM can be solved by topical treatments with come, which come with less risks. And we have pills and lotions and tablets, ovules, you know, and what's lovely about the choices that we have is that they can be catered according to that woman's specific symptoms or preferences. Some people like creams, personally don't, you know, the cream comes out one side and the other when you're trying to put it on. Ovules are moisturizing. Some people, you know, aren't comfortable, you know, inserting an ovule. So we have applicators that can be used. Uh, and in some cases, we also have an oral pill, right? So the options are there. We just need to provide education and the medical community has to do better. Uh, I am certainly part of that movement, trying to encourage primary care physicians uh, and other allied healthcare professionals to open up the dialogue. But as women show up, say, this is concerning, I want to, and I need to talk about it. And, you know, it's really important, obviously, to advocate for your health because these there's really long-term consequences from ignoring these symptoms, symptoms right? Absolutely. I mean, incontinence can become worse. And unfortunately, unless you rehabilitate the tissue early, you know, the longer you wait, the harder it is uh, to, to rehabilitate. So early treatment is absolutely important, uh, absolutely essential. And, you know, we want to live, we all want longevity, but we want longevity with quality of life. Uh, and that's a, a key point I often mention to patients as well. Absolutely. And it's so important that we do open up this conversation and normalize it because there are a lot of women walking around who have no idea what's going on and feel like they're losing their mind uh, with the symptoms. Or have normalized their symptoms. And right. my mother has it, my sister has it, it's just part of aging. It may be a consequence of aging, but it's not inevitably uh, um without treatment, right? So you don't have to suffer. You just have to start the dialogue. And uh, the first thing is, is become informed, understand your condition, you know, um, someone understand what conditions are available, educate yourself beforehand so you can have a, a discussion with a healthcare provider suggesting treatments. All right. So if people want to find out more, uh, they can go to caretoknow.ca? Yeah, you know, we've talked about this uh, regularly. I am a huge supporter. Caretoknow.ca free sign up. You get medical information delivered to your inbox. Um, there's some interactions that you can have. Information is updated medically, uh, updated also according to new innovations. The uh, topic range is also expanding. Really quite excited about this initiative, particularly when so much misinformation is out there. And when it comes to your health, you want to make sure that the information that you are gathering is credible. We're not whispering about this anymore. We're shouting it out. Uh, and you have a blog post on whatshesaidtalk.com that goes into this subject deeper for those who want to learn more. And thank you for joining me. You'll be back next month. See you soon. Oh, the More 
more with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. If I ever was in need, but daddy, I can't come to you. The start of a new year is always a good time to dive into thought-provoking reads that challenge our perspectives. Today, I'm joined by Misty Pratt, author of the deeply personal and provocative book, All in Her Head, How Gender Bias Harms Women's Mental Health. This book explores the unique challenges women face in mental health care and how systemic changes are necessary for women to truly flourish. Big topic, so let's dive into this crucial conversation with Misty right now. Misty, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So this addresses a really critical issue, the gender bias in mental health care. Can you share what motivated you to write this book and and how your personal experiences shaped it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it is very personal. Um, when I was in my teens, I have what I called my nervous breakdown. Uh, I know that's not an actual disorder, but that's what it felt like to me. It was like my nervous system just went haywire. I was experiencing a lot of panic attacks, anxiety but also a lot of sadness and depression too. And I entered outpatient treatment with a local psychologist and I was there for about a year. And I remember at the time when he was releasing me from treatment, he said, you know, Misty, these kinds of things can recur. You may have these issues again in the future. And being a typical teen, I was like, sure, sure. You know, I'm, I'm done here. But he was right. It did recur and I did relapse in my 20s and even into when I was having my babies as well. And the explanation I got throughout all of that was that it was a, you know, biological illness that I had a chemical imbalance in my brain that was causing this issue and that I had a genetic imbalance or a genetic disorder that had been passed down from my grandmother. Um, But I think what I realized in going through multiple treatment um, options and talking to multiple therapists was that, you know, it was much more than just something going on inside of me. There was a lot of other pressures that I was facing as a woman. And when I started to examine those and started to question why treatments weren't working for me, why I was not getting better, uh, I started to realize there was so much more to our mental health than just our biology. And in your book, you explore the concept of hysteria from mm-hmm. ancient from the ancient Greek, and and you compare that to modern sort of self self help solutions. So, how do these historical stereotypes continue to influence uh, the treatment uh, of women's health, mental health today? Yeah, when we talk about hysteria, we often focus on the seventeenth, eighteenth century when we we hear a lot about hysteria, the fainting, the fainting, the nerve, <laughs> the nerves. Right? We talk about you know things like vibrators for treatment. Um, But hysteria goes way back to, as you mentioned, the ancient Greeks and Egyptians who thought that it had to do with our uterus kind of moving around our body. Uh, So it was very much, it started as a biological problem, as something wrong with some of our female parts, right? But it continued. And so hysteria really persisted throughout the centuries. It wasn't just that those ancient Greeks it um, morphed into kind of a, uh, you know, something that was wrong with our soul, an evil thing. Um, witchcraft, the witch hunts very much focused on this evil 
um, you know, spirit that women had in their bodies. And I know that, yes, men were often diagnosed as, as witches as well and were uh, burned at the stakes too, but it was much more so uh, women who, who died in the witch hunts. And then we get to, you know, the 17th century, 18th century, where you see it start to change and shift again. So it was like our nerves were the problem. Then it was our uterus again. Then it might be our ovaries. And so my argument in the book is that I don't think hysteria has ever really gone away. I think it has persisted. And I think to this day, we still see issues in women being diagnosed with you know, mental illness much more so than men. And that's being linked to things like chemical imbalance in their brains or hormonal imbalance. You hear that all the time that you have to balance your hormones to feel better psychologically. So it seems to be something that has not gone away. And you mentioned that mood disorders have skyrocketed among, among women who are often misdiagnosed or dismissed. Uh, so what are some specific risk factors for common mental disorders that disproportionately affect women? Mm-hmm. So we can kind of divide things up into common mental health disorders like anxiety and depression, panic disorder, OCD, and then what we call more severe mental illnesses that are just higher needs. Um, but of course, common mental illnesses can also be kind of severe at times too. Uh, and those uh, more severe ones have not, you know, those numbers have not grown over time and they don't seem to have a big gender gap there. Whereas anxiety and depression, we seem to have this huge uh, gap in the number of women that, that deal with these compared to men. Uh, and there seems to be more of a social component to this than, say, a genetic or a biological component. So research really doesn't show that uh, our genes have a starring role in these kinds of illnesses. And so things like uh, sexual harassment, sexual violence, uh, poverty, which affects women much more so than men, uh, financial distress, and of course, uh, unequal caregiving burdens. So sometimes we focus on things like a mental uh, load or emotional labor, we call it. And so these, all of these factors really impact women's uh, mental health much more so than men's, and it seems to be linked to the to these common illnesses such as anxiety and depression. All in your head, it, it's it's not just a critique. It also offers some hope and some courage for women to reclaim their mental health. So, can you share some key strategies or insights from the book that empower women in this regard? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I share a lot of personal stories, not just my own. So, I interviewed women from all over the world. Uh, women who have had many different experiences than me because I am just one woman. I am a white woman. I am fairly privileged. And so my experience of, of this has been different than other people's. So I really wanted to bring in all of those different stories and, and you know, show some different sides of this. Uh, and I also try to debunk a lot of myths about emotions. So we do have a lot of myths out there in pop psychology about how our emotions actually work in our brain. A lot of stereotypes about how women experience more emotions, how we're more emotional. So I debunk those. And I really dive into something called embodiment, which is how we can learn to kind of drop into our bodies and explore our emotions in a different way than the traditional cognitive behavioral therapy approach, which is very much about our thoughts, our thinking brain, our cognitive brain. Um, but there is evidence that supports that if we want to recover from mental illness, that uh, we do have to focus a bit on the body and what the body is experiencing. 
I would like to know more about that. Can you ex- describe embodiment? Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? So embodiment has been defined as kind of the how we experience our body in a social context. And so we walk around every day with sensations that we feel, you know, before this interview, I was having little butterflies in my stomach, right? Because I knew I was going to be talking about my book. And uh, all of these internal sensations are being used by our brain to really predict what's about to happen next with the ultimate goal of keeping us alive. And so our body or our brain is actually not really a great fortune teller. It's not a great predictor. It gets things wrong a lot of the time. And so if we have a better understanding of these internal body sensations, we can actually use that information to help our brain predict better and to hopefully be starting to feel a little bit better and to improve our well-being. Just on that basis alone, I want to read this entire book because <laughs> that that fascinates me because I think we do often give our brains too much credit for what is going yes. on. It's not all it's not everything. So I, I love that you bring this into the conversation as well. Uh, so when you were researching this book, was there anything that popped up and surprised you? I think that, well, the emotion, the neuroscience of emotions was the huge surprise. And I wanted to spend chapters on that. And my editor was like, okay, we need to, you know, we need to pivot and move to some other topics here because I just was like so fascinated about this idea that our brains are fortune tellers uh, and that, you know, the myth that we have that our cognitive rational brain has control over this ancient reptilian. Sometimes you hear people call it your lizard brain. It's like that's the part of you that's having all these emotions like anger and, sadness and despair when we don't actually have different parts of our brain. Our brain, we we use all of it when it comes to emotion. And so we can't use a thinking rational brain to try to override or control uh, emotions. And so that was really, you know, for me, it was revelatory because I thought, okay, if I can now start to understand how emotions actually work in my body, I can start to work with my body a little bit better to, to get to the heart of why I'm feeling sad or anxious. I love this. And it is so, so needed, Misty. Uh, you know, we talk about mental health on this show. It comes up in one form or, the, or another almost weekly, mm-hmm. uh, especially, obviously, as it pertains to women and everything we've been through for the last few years. So uh, very timely that your book is out uh, and great contribution to the discussion about women's mental health. So where can people keep up with you and where can they pre-order the book? So if you'd like to pre-order the book, um, I always love when people pre-order from their local bookstore. So you can give your local bookstore a call and ask them to order it in. Or you can also order it online anywhere you buy your books. So Amazon.ca, Amazon.com, Indigo, and in the U.S. you can do Barnes & Noble as well. Uh, If you want to follow me, I am at MistyPratt.ca. You can also find me on Instagram and threads at PrattMistyWriter. Same for Facebook. And on TikTok, I am PrattMistyAuthor. All right. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. 
Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.